You are listening to Half Torah, the Shir series which explores the connections between the Parsha Shavua and its corresponding Half Torah. And here at the database with Rabbi Yeshua Eisenberg, this week's Parsha is Parsha's bow, and the Half Torah this week comes to us from Sefer Yermia. Now I would say that this is the very first time in all of the Parshios HaShavua that we are featuring Yermia for the Half Torah. However, that's not completely true. As a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the possibility of a reading of Yirmiya for the Haftarah for Parshas Shemos. Now that is only true according to the Sephardic custom. According to our Ashkenazic custom, we read from Sefer Yishayahu, and we spoke about the very interesting occurrence, the phenomenon for Parshas Shemos, that there are two different Haftarahs, two different Masoras, um, which find us reading two different books, depending on what your custom is. Um, but at least for now, this is the first time that we are unequivocally featuring Sefer Yermia, which to me comes off as somewhat as surprising as Yermia is a more commonly featured Navi for Haftarah um, than you may think based on the Parshas that we've had up until now and the Nevi'im that we have featured up until now. From Barashas all the way until now, we've only had Yermia as a possible reading for the Sephardic custom, and uh, now we're actually getting it in our Ashkenazi custom. Um, but be that as it may, we will take a look at what the Haftar this week has to offer us from the lyrical Navi Achron Yirmiya. Now, um, before we begin, I'll just once again dedicate this shir, Lili Nishma Simi Merasi, Harini Kaparas Meshkava. And of course, all the shir moving forward should be dedicated as a schos for the Aliyah for her Neshama. And what I will mention by way of introduction, going into the analysis for this particular Haftarah, I'll mention what we pointed out last week when we were learning the Haftarah for Parshas Va'era, which came from Yechezkel, the second time that Yechezkel was featured for a Haftarah. So we had mentioned that Yechezkel actually issues a prophecy directed at Mitzrayim, and we argued why the reading from Yechezkel was better than what you might think of as an almost parallel reading in Sefer Yeshaya, Perak Yodtes, because Perak Yodtes in Yeshaya is also a prophecy directed at Mitzrayim. And we find that frequently in Nevi'im Achronim we'll have series of prophecies that the Nevi'im Achronim are addressing against various nations, and Mitzrayim is featured in more than one of those um, nevuos, and more than one of those prophecies that are targeting the nations, we find Egypt. Now, what I did not mention last week is there is another Navi who does issue a prophecy against Egypt, and that is none other than Yermia. And I didn't really discuss at the time why not read the prophecy that Yirmiya directed against Mitzrayim as one of our Haftaras? And of course, we don't have to because that's exactly the Haftarah for this week. Now, what that means is, great, we have a Navi talking about Mitzrayim and it's featured in one of the Parshios of the Ten Makos and one of the Parshios of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, which features us against the, the the nation of Mitzrayim. And because of that, we can find a nice place to, to, to put this reading from Yermia. But what we have to 
answer is a similar question to last week. We still haven't featured Yeshaya Yudtes as any of the Haftaras, and we never will. And if that's the case, why is this reading better? Right, what exactly is the focus of this particular nevuah against Mitzrayim? So, um, just so we are keeping the records, there are three nevi'im at least in the nevi'im Achronim that issue a prophecy against Mitzrayim. We have Yeshaya, we have Yechezkel, and now we have Yermia. And Yechezkel was featured last week, Yeshaya was not featured at all. Now we finally get to hear from Yermia. And another thing that I mentioned while we are on this topic is that since Yetzirah Mitzrayim is a commonly featured uh, theme throughout Tanakh, you can probably dip from many different svarim, many different neviim to talk about it. But of course, we're going to try to find the most precise connection that we can, and we're doing that right now with the reading that we have been given from Yermia. More specifically, the reading comes from Yermia Perak Memvav 46, and it takes us from Pasuk Yergimel all the way to Pasuk Chavches, that's 13 to 28. So once again, it's 46, 13 to 28. Now, when we were analyzing the prophecies of the past couple of Avtaras for Sefer Shemos, we were initially looking for any possible references to Egypt and the story of the Exodus as we know it. But as much as the early parshas of Sefer Shemos clearly make up one large Exodus story taking place in Egypt, one thing that we have to remember is that each individual sidra, each individual parsha, is significant in its own right and apparently highlights its own individual theme. They are each their own chapters in the story of the Exodus. And it's not just part one, part two, part three. I want to argue that each parsha really contributes its own piece to the puzzle and highlights something different. So beyond references to the general setting or concept of the story, like Egypt or the Exodus, more importantly, I think we need to be able to identify each respective Sidra's unique theme, and we're going to hopefully do that through the lenses of the Haftarah right now. So Parsha Shmos, for example, we argued, marked the beginning of the exile, and as such, the Haftarah from Yeshaya, according to the Ashkenazi custom, which was about the B'nai Yaakov taking root in the land of their exile, where they would eventually blossom forth as the B'nai Yisrael. And similarly, when it came to Parshas Ve'era, we said that, that marked the beginning of Hashem's response to the complacent, arrogant Paro who denied God's existence. So Ve'era's Haftar from Yechezkel discussed Hashem's plans to smite Paro, who was the sea giant, the Tanin of the Nile River, who claimed to be its maker. The readings lined up very nicely. So if we've been able to find nice connections so far, Parshas Bo should be no different. And in the Haftarah for Parshas Bo, we should therefore be able to identify not merely a reference, a passing reference to Egypt, for example, but we should be able to instead identify a more fundamental theme of the Sidra. And with that, the question is, what is the Haftarah of Parshas Bo about? So taken from Yermia, the Haftarah for Parshas Bo is once again, as we mentioned, another prophecy directed at Egypt. However, unlike the similar concept which we've discussed in the Haftarah for Parshas Ve'era, in the parallel reading in Yechezkel, so this one does not discuss as much what Hashem would do to the later day Egypt, but what Hashem says Nebuchadnezzar Melech Bavel, king of Babylon, what he would do to Egypt. Either way, the Egypt reference we were hoping for is certainly there. So far, um, we're not doing that badly. But 
Well, we need to obviously do a little more than that. All right, so what's even more is that as the Haftarah proceeds, the Nebi foretells that the Babylonians, when cutting down the forests of Egypt, they would be more numerous than Arba, locusts. And the connection is perfect because Parsha's bow begins with none other than the Maka of Arba, the plague of locusts. And there is no way that that was by accident, that that was completely on purpose. Um, it has to be. That the Haftar is going to start off talking about locusts right off the bat, just where we find that in the very beginning of our Parsha. So it's just too perfect. Um, but while it's perfect and cool, we have this Egypt reference, we have the solution to the plague of locusts, but those are really the only two connections. If you go through the the body of the Haftarah, that's really as far as they go. So the question is, how does this particular prophecy convey the essential message of Parsha's bow? Because if you think about it, the plague of locusts is but one factor. It's a single plague. Yes, the very first plague, but only one plague in the entire Sidra of the three plagues that are featured in the Parsha. We don't see any other plagues referenced in the Haftarah. So the question is, why is Arba so special and particularly convincing a connection, a compelling connection to the Parsha? Is it, once again, just a shout out or is it pointing at something fundamental? Moreover, what does the Navua of Bavel's victory over Paro have to do with Parsha's bow? We know that Parsha's bow continues Hashem's onslaught of Paro, so who cares what other nations of mortals are going to do to Mitzrayim? To the like the, the, these two beatdowns of Egypt seem hardly com- um, they seem hardly comparable. So these questions all relate to what I think is a separate important question that we might ask about Parsha's bow in general, regarding its division as a separate Parsha from the era altogether. And this is a question that we've addressed in Parsha Panorama in the past. The question is, should Parsha's bow have really been its own sidra? Should it have been its own Parsha? Because, as we mentioned, bow continues the narrative of plagues against Egypt, which, of course, had begun in Vaera. Yet, for some reason, at plague number eight, at the plague of locusts, we start a new Sidra. And the question we've addressed in the past is, why is that? If one wants to argue that the Sidra would have been too long if Vaera and Bo were connected, assuming that that argument is even legitimate, which, in all honesty, is probably not, uh, maybe, maybe it could be, but the, uh, the new Sidra could have begun in many different spots. It could have begun, maybe we could have split up the Makos down the middle, five and five. Maybe we could have split them, at least according to the order of Datsach Hadash Ba'achav, the acronym that's employed by Rabbi Yehuda, which is most famous for it being featured in the Haggadah. But we don't even do that, right? Because the last set should start with Barad, and Barad is what ends off Parshas Va'era, meaning that Bo begins in the middle of a set. So for organizational purposes, we are not doing quite well in terms of how we separate the parsha, which again brings home the question why we would start from locusts. If you would not, if you would prefer a different starting point, we could have started the parsha just before Makas Becharos or Rahachodesh Hazalachem, after Makas Choshech. Either way, that is also not where we actually start the parsha. We start the parsha at Maka number 
8, we started at locusts. And the question, once again, is why? So this particular question is important for our discussion of the Torah, because as was mentioned, the Torah, according to our theory, should highlight the unique theme of the Sidra. So until we can identify why it is that Parsha's bow begins where it does, we will likely be unable to identify the apparent theme of Bo, which as well, I want to argue, begins where the Sidra does, with the locusts. So if Bo should have really been a mere continuation of Aira, then perhaps the themes are all the same. But I don't think that can be, because as Bo begins a new Sidra with its own new Haftarah, something new must be conveyed here at the beginning of Bo. The question then is, what is the unique theme of Parsha's Bo that begins to show itself when Moshe returns to Paro to warn him and the Mitzrayim about the oncoming plague of Arba of locusts. So before we can get to any answers, we might point out that another difference between the Haftarah of Vaira and that of Bo is that while the Haftarah of Vaira describes Paro as a Tanim, some kind of sea monster, some sea beast, in the Haftarah of Bo, we actually hear about some other forms of imagery. First, Egypt is compared to a very beautiful calf, Egla Fia, which kind of reminds us of the dreams of the much earlier Paro. And then he's referred to as Enochash, a serpent. It's interesting that both cows and snakes were significant in ancient Egyptian culture, as the Egyptians worshipped the cows, among many things, and the snake as well was a symbol of royalty and divine authority in Egypt, as you might be familiar with the snake on top of the pharaoh hat. But if we think about it, cows and snakes are very different creatures. So what are we to make of these two very different images, a cow and a snake, as they pertain to Mitzrayim? And what is conveyed differently through these images as opposed to the sea beast that was featured in last week's Haftarah? So you can keep that um, question on the side just for now. Um, as As we think about all the questions... Um, again, why Parsha's bow begins where it does. What does this Haftarah spe- um, tell us and reflect from the Parsha beyond just the locusts? Are the locusts more significant than we actually realize? And now these questions of why it is that we have different imagery for Paro and for Mitzrayim, going from the giant sea creature to a cow and a snake. So let's actually take a look at, uh, let's, let's go back to the, the, the question of the imagery. So the Navi here describes how the beautiful calf is actually being prepared for slaughter, which can't be a good omen for Paro. As far as the snake reference is concerned, the Navi compares Egypt's voice to that of a quiet Nachash in the forest, as the Babylonian armies come with their axes, also a desperate depiction of Egypt. The relationship between the two animal, the animal images at least in this Haftarah, is that of mortality and desperation. For a more colloquial image, we might say that Egypt is a sitting duck. It is a vulnerable cow and a sneaking snake hiding from its enemies. Now, when we consider these comparisons between Egypt and both the cow and the snake, in light of the last Haftar, which compared Para to a beast of the Nile, we might notice an apparent shift. The king of the Nile imagery is a sign of grandeur and dominance, which Para once had. But this more lowly cow and snake imagery portray just the opposite. God had promised to strike down the arrogant king of the Nile, while here he merely foretells a time when Egypt would be so desperate 
It would be a calf ready for slaughter, a hushed serpent in the forest, hoping not to be axed by the mortal um, army of, of Babylonians. While the Haftarah of the era portrays Parah with some force to be reckoned with, that of Bo depicts a lost cause in Egypt. Now the question is, is there a contradiction between these images? And indeed, I don't think there really is a contradiction here, because you can very easily explain these two images as being the difference between Paro's fantasy and the painful reality. Now, which image is the real one? Which one is the illusion? Obviously, there was never any competition between God and Paro, and it would be a joke for one to think that there ever was. From the beginning of the plague, Egypt was a cow being readied for slaughter. There was never a king of the Nile. Now, when one looks at Vaira versus Bob, one might notice that same shift. Because in Parsha's Vaira, after each plague, Paro would stand his ground. It almost appeared as though Paro had some shot at competition. And if he could withstand the plagues, why wouldn't one think that? The fact that Hashem had to mete out plague after plague for this reason is strange. If we know that God could have wiped out Egypt with a single plague, if he had so pleased. When we get to Parsha's bow, before the plague of locusts, Hashem reveals to Moshe the method to his, what we might call his proverbial madness. Right? Why is Hashem playing games with Paro? Why is Hashem allowing Paro to withstand the plagues? What's the point? And by the time we get to, to Makas Arba in the beginning of our Parsha, it's spelled out very, very clearly why Hashem would do this. Says Hashem to Moshe at the beginning of Parsha's bow. Says Hashem to Moshe, Come to Paro, for I have made his heart heavy, and the heart of his servants as well. Why? In order that I should place my signs, these ones, in his midst. And why? In order that you and your children should tell over. Right, that you should tell over in the ears of your children and your children's children that I made a mockery of Mitzrayim. And you'll tell over all the signs that I did in its midst, its midst and you'll know that I am Hashem. In other words, Hashem tells Moshe that he does not just want, you know, he doesn't want anyone to make any mistakes. Right? He, he didn't just battle it out with Paro. He didn't duke it out. But indeed, he toyed with him. He, he played games with him. Not um, right. Um, now, not just by you know withholding Paro's free choice, necessarily. And the Rambam says he withheld his free choice, but as the Sfarno and the Maharal explain, what Hashem really did was he strengthens Paro's resolve and enabled him to withstand the plagues, and allowed Paro to make his own choice. And by doing that, he ultimately made a joke of uh, out of Paro. He made an example out of him. Because, of course, there was never a competition. I made a mockery of him. So there was no competition, not between Hashem and Paro, anyway. And if anything, it was Paro versus himself. He is spared after each and every plague. He's given a chance after chance to just give in. Yet he insists on chasing his own tail and asking for more suffering because he's desperate to hang on to his false reality where he is the only God. Now, how is this point demonstrated best at this particular juncture, right at the beginning of Bo? The answer to this question has everything to do with Makas Arbe, the plague of locusts. 
the Torah actually tells us what the function of the locusts was, that they were to eat away all of the crops that were left over from the previous plague, Makas Barad. Now here's the question. If Hashem wanted to wipe out the crops of the land, which as per the prescription of this plague, he definitely did, then why did he not destroy them in one fell swoop during Makas Barad? Why did he keep some crops around until Arba? Now granted, the Torah already provided a scientific um, explanation, a physics explanation for the survival of the wheat and the spelt over the barley and flax. For the wheat and spelt were not yet ripe and they were therefore not stiff. So their softness and flexibility allowed them to survive the falling hailstones. They didn't snap like the ripened crops, like the flax and the barley. However, that's all within the realm of logic and physics and, I guess, botany. But there were enough supernatural miracles taking place during the Makos, so if Hashem wanted to, he could have wiped out all the crops altogether. So the question is, why did he maintain some of the crops? Why did Hashem require the plague of locusts at all? And I think the answer is that it's to demonstrate the same point that we've been mentioning this whole time. Look at Egypt. Look at Mitzrayim. Desperate, with almost no food. In truth, after experiencing the wild animals and fiery hailstones, these people are just lucky to be alive. In any event, they are alive. Plus, at this point, they still have food. So take it and run. Or rather, take it and let the Bnei Israel run. But what does Paro do instead? While Hashem taunts Paro, waving the remainder of Egypt's food supply on a string in front of him like a carrot, the stubborn fool in Paro attempts to fight back once again. All of the food could have been taken away through the barad. Hashem left something left. Just take it and just give in. But no, Paro can't do it. Parsha's bow in this way sheds light on the possible facade that one might have perceived in Parsha's Vaira. The facade that there is a competition, there is a force to be reckoned with in Paro. But Parsha's bow tells us that no, there is no king of the Nile. There is just a mortal calf, a desperate slimy snake of a human. And that is the lesson of the locusts. Now, while we could have stopped there, I would say that there's another part to this lesson, another side to the coin. Because if the beginning of Bo was the reality check for Paro in Egypt, the end of Bo relates its implications for the purposes of us, the Bnei Israel, who had the luxury of watching from the bleachers. Each of the Makos demonstrated the fate of those arrogant, stubborn, and foolish enough to defy the will of God. Then what would follow is that it is one's obligation to, sa- to submit himself to the will of Hashem. Indeed, before the plagues conclude, Hashem makes sure that the Bnei Israel have this understanding as he commands them regarding the laws of Kavan Pesach as a prelude to the final plague, Makas Becharos. And only if the Bnei Israel would adhere to the Ratzon Hashem and demonstrate their understanding of the differentiation which Hashem has made between them and the wicked Mitzrayim, only then would they justify their survival at the end of this exile, by placing the blood of the carbon on their doors. Only then would Hashem skip over their homes when judging Mitzrayim. And this lesson of differentiation is stated clearly at the very um, at the very, very end of our Torah as well. As the Navi states, 
Viata Altira of the Yaakov, Viate Israel Ki Hineni Moshiacha. He says, But you, you Bene Israel, don't fear. He says, Don't fear my servant Yaakov, don't be frightened, Israel, for behold, here I am, your Savior. In other words, here Hashem promises that unlike the Egyptians and really all of the wicked and oppressive nations of the world, who would be annihilated, the Bene Israel would not be broken by their suffering. So long as we learn the mistakes of the stubborn and and humble ourselves through our genuine observance of Hashem's will, Hashem will then shower us with the ultimate kindliness once again. So shall be zochet to learn from the plagues of the past, prevent any further plagues against our people in the future. We should make not like Paro, who couldn't learn from any of the Mahakos and even from the desperate um, you know, food supply at the risk of the locusts, we should submit ourselves to Hashem and be showered by Hashem's chesed and his salvation. We should experience that gula once again with the coming of a shiach from Harabi Menu. And once again, if you are enjoying these shurim and you want to partner up with us here at the database for the sponsorship, or if you have questions, comments, concerns, or recommendations, or you want to join the database podcast WhatsApp group for updates and links for the uploaded shear, and all you have to do is reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's the data then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com. Until next time, have a wonderful Shabbos, and thank you for joining us here at the database.